Well, we kicked off the new year with our study of the book of Exodus, and the book of Exodus serves as the veritable fount of Jewish identity. It is, in a sense, the declaration of independence for the, for the Jewish people. While the book of Genesis takes place before then, really, Exodus is where they get to know their God. So when Moses shows up in a few chapters and says, Yahweh sent me, they are being introduced to their God for the first time. And they learn about the events of Genesis actually after the fact, but Exodus is where they come to experience their God for the first time. In the book of Exodus, probably more than in any book of the Bible, God reveals himself to his people. We learn more about who God is and how God operates in the book of Exodus than probably any other book in the Bible. So it's not surprising that one commentator titles his commentary Exodus, the missionary heart of God, or Exodus, the God who reveals himself. God is on a mission in the book of Exodus to reveal himself. God who exists outside of the created order would remain utterly unknown to us were it not for the fact that he chooses to reveal himself. But in his love and mercy, he makes himself known. Now, we live in an era in which everybody has an opinion about God. Typically, they are wrong opinions, but everybody has an opinion. So the question is, in an era where every time you turn on the TV, you're told that God is this or God is that or God isn't this or that, how do we sort out the clutter from the truth? And perhaps even more importantly, why should we care? Why should we care? Incidentally, the central question of the book of Exodus is found on the lips of Pharaoh himself. Did you know that? The central question in the book of Exodus is found in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, where Pharaoh asks scoffingly, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And brothers and sisters, questions of authority abound in our age. In our postmodern age, where we do not like someone telling us what we should do, who is the Lord that we should obey him? Have you ever had someone come up to you and tell you how they, you ought to live your life or do something and, and, and you kind of give them an askew glance like, who do you think you are telling me what to do? Yet all too often, this is precisely how we approach God. Who are you to tell me what to do? You're just the nice old man living up in the sky who, who grants wishes or whose job it is to make me feel like I'm at peace. Who are you to tell me what to do? Well, that's what the book of Exodus sets out. You want to know who the Lord is that you should obey his voice? Read the book of Exodus. So here we are at the last Sunday of January. And let me ask you a question. How are your resolutions going? The new year is always a time of reflection. As we look back upon a previous year of, of successes and failures, and, and it's a 
time of anticipation as we look forward to how we can do things better, differently in the future. And so we make plans, we, 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 we make resolutions where we say, this is what we're going to do differently to live a better life, to have a better experience in the world. And these resolutions oftentimes fall flat. Maybe you resolve to get your finances under control, and here we are four weeks into the month and you're already up to your eyeballs in debt. Maybe you resolve to, to respond more positively to a negative work environment. And already you've lost your cool and you dream of choking your boss. Or maybe you said, you know what, this, this year I'm going to start exercising, which I desperately need to do. And you have yet to so much as go for a walk. Or maybe... Maybe some of you have said, I'm going to read my Bible this year. And the only Bible reading you get is when you come and worship on Sunday. What happens when you had great anticipation for a better future and then it falls flat? We kind of just go, oh, brother, another year, another day. <sighs> Life is so mundane, so monotonous. It just never gets better, so why bother? Kind of depressing. The Hebrews, in verse 23, were in kind of the same situation. Verse 23 begins with really good news. After those many days, or during those many days, the many days meaning the 40 years that Moses is living his life in Midian, during those many days, the Pharaoh died. Hallelujah. The guy who instituted genocidal programs against them is dead. In the ancient world, they understood time just like we do. They had 24-hour days. The Egyptians had 12 30-day calendars, and they tacked on five free-floating days. Just a little trivia for you. They used a lunar calendar instead of a solar one like we do because you can see the moon going through its 30-day cycle of you know there's there's no moon then there's a waxing full waning okay you can see that and so that's what they followed so they understood time just like we do but they understood history the significant events of history around the lives of their leaders this is why so often, not only in the Bible, but in many ancient literature pieces, you'll see that something is dated as occurring within the X year of so-and-so's reign. History, the significant events that we remember as part of our past and collective past, are centered around our significant leaders. That's, that's what they did. So, in a very real sense, the death of this Pharaoh in 23 signifies the ending of an era. And the rise of a new pharaoh indicates the beginning of a new era. And the Egyptians understood this, which is why when a new pharaoh would take over, there would be a general jubilee throughout the land. It was common for debts to be erased, for the prisons to be emptied out, for, for trespasses to be forgiven. So can you imagine being one of the Hebrews and you're catching word that Pharaoh's sick, and he's on his deathbed, and you start thinking, oh, hallelujah, he's going to die. We're going to have a new era. 
Debts will be forgiven. Slaves will be set free. Prisons will be cleared. It's going to be wonderful. And then a new Pharaoh comes, and nothing changes. Nothing changes. Where's God? God, you promised a better future. You promised me a full life. But nothing is changing. This passage wants you to know, in the midst of all of your circumstances, in the midst of your seemingly endless mundane day after day after day where circumstances do not change, you are not forgotten. You have not slipped through the cracks. God has not become so busy running the cosmos that you have passed out of view. You are not forgotten. Verse 24 says that God remembers his covenant at that point. Does that indicate that prior to verse 24 he had forgotten it? That God was absent from them for the preceding 400 years? That he was nowhere to be found? A wall? No. Remember back in chapter 1. They're multiplying exponentially. There's a corresponding rate of growth that corresponds to the level of persecution. Do you think that's natural? We live in a naturalistic world where we're, where we're seeking naturalistic explanations for everything. But is it natural that as a people is being persecuted and worked to the bone and kept from their families that their, that their population explodes? No. And what about the Hebrew midwives who, who bravely and heroically defy Pharaoh? And what does it say God does for them? He gives them families. So God was with them. He was there. But they took his lack of action, apparent action, as a sign that he was gone. And brothers and sisters, I would suggest that oftentimes that is the exact same pair of glasses that we wear. That we put on these glasses and we judge God's presence or, or absence on the basis of what we think we see him doing or not doing. They didn't see his hand, and so they assumed he was gone. I would ask you to look at your life. You may not see his hand, but does that mean he's gone? No. Now here, as always, when it says God remembers his covenant, that's Bible language. This is actually kind of an ominous passage for the Egyptians, okay? When it says God remembers what it signifies in the Bible is that God is about to do something. He is rousing himself to take action on behalf of his people. That is always what it means. When God remembers, you better start playing the dun-dun-dun because he is rousing himself to action for his people. Sometimes for deliverance, sometimes for judgment, as in the case with Egypt, a little of both. But he's stepping up. It does not mean that they were truly out of sight, out of mind. Now, if you remember back, in Genesis 15, we preached on this a few verses, weeks ago, God had made a promise that in the 
fourth generation, he would bring them back to the land. So God had already kept his part of the promise where he would multiply them greatly in Egypt. That's what chapter 1 of Exodus is letting you know. They have multiplied exceedingly and they fill the land. But now God is remembering and so he's about to take action to bring about the second part of his covenant promise to Abraham to bring them out and to bring them back to the land of Canaan. That is what God is remembering. And we remember back from Genesis 15 that there was a reason why it was going to be the fourth generation that came back. Why? Do you remember what that was? The sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. And we touched on that. But we need to say it again because we so often forget that God's plan for his people wasn't only a plan for his people. God's plan for his people also took into account his plan for the nations. That same pair of glasses that we oftentimes wear that make us think that God isn't around because we don't see him proactively doing something for us is the same pair of glasses that oftentimes makes us believe that God's plan for us should be so special that it just happens without regard for anyone else. God is on a mission in the world. And he's so amazing, so big, so mighty, so powerful that you take the 6.7 billion people in the world as individuals and as political social groups and take all the animals, all the immaterial, inanimate objects in the world and his plan is so comprehensive that everything that happens to all of them sinks and swerves and moves together to create one huge tapestry. And so sometimes he has us in a holding pattern while he's working out the details for this place to get this person or group of people in the right place so that eventually when he says, go, green light, things intersect the way he wants them to. So we've got to take off our self-absorbed glasses in order to see that we are part of a bigger plan. You matter, but you're not the only one that matters. God's plan is big. But that can cause us to think, well, sure, God's sovereign, and he's got a plan, and he won't forget it, yada, yada, I got it, I understand. But does that mean that his plan for us then is carried out without any real regard for us personally? That he's utterly uh, just emotionally disconnected? That there's no personal interest at all? That it's just just a a system carrying out its programming? No. This passage shows the depth of God's involvement and concern. So point number two is God is concerned for you and your story. Look at this. Four verbs. This is God's response to their cry coming up to heaven. He hears their groaning. He remembers their covenant. He saw And he knew. Two verbs of perception, seeing and hearing. Two verbs of reflection, remembering and knowing. Okay, the idea here is that God is intimately aware and intimately concerned. Now this is in stark contrast to the pagan notions of the day. 
Incidentally, Pharaoh's attitude towards the Egyptians is remarkably consistent with pagan theology. In pagan theology, the gods are at best ambivalent. And you got to jump around and, and make a noise. you got to inspire them to want to do something for you. And Pharaoh, by the Egyptians, was considered to be raw on earth. He was a divine figure in their mind. So no wonder then that he would carry on the pagan theological notions of ambivalence and dispassion towards the Hebrews. But God is not like that. Some of you may feel like God is dispassionate towards you because, again, you don't see him acting. But yet, we are in covenant with him. Because of Christ, who shed his blood for us, who purchased us. So it doesn't matter where you are, or when you are, or what circumstance you're going through, whether it's as egregious as slavery in Egypt, or as just frustrating as you just can't seem to lose weight. He sees. He hears. He knows. Our God is a God who cares deeply for you. God is not out of touch. That is what the incarnation was all about. Did you know that? As much as God cares, the incarnation was Jesus, the Son of God, assuming flesh, becoming man, that he might truly walk in our skin, experience every joy, every hardship, every trial, every hurt, Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? It was a struggle for him. He felt intense agony. He knows your lot. And he cares deeply. But here's the crazy thing. We look at this and think, oh, God kept himself hidden from the people. Uh, you know, God, God had a plan that didn't involve just the people. It involved also the, the Amorites and the Canaanites. So, so God had him in a holding pattern. And yeah, God cared, but still he didn't reveal himself. Was that the case or was it the case that the people didn't seek him out? Consider that this passage takes place after nearly a century of mistreatment. Eighty years, at least. And only here, in verse 23, do they cry out. Only after nearly a hundred years do they seek God out. And even then, look at the passage very carefully. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Who did they pray to? It says it went up to God. But all commentators are quick to point out that here it doesn't say they're praying to God. And no wonder, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 25, God says that they went native, that they were serving the gods of Egypt. So the problem was not that God kept himself from the people. The problem was that the people forgot all about God. And they were content living life on their own terms. And it was only when they were under desperate circumstances that they wanted help at all. But note, they didn't so much want to get out of Egypt. They just wanted to stop being slaves. They wanted the misery to stop being so bad. 
Have you ever seen someone who's going through a hard time and they cry out to God, but they're not really wanting life change, are they? They're just wanting the hurting to stop. God wants something bigger. You see, they never at any point in the book of Exodus ask to get out of Egypt. It's God who shows up saying, I'm going to get you out of Egypt. Egypt for them was home. Even within the lifetime of the patriarchs, yes, Jacob himself had lived a good bit of his life in Canaan before going away, but Jacob's sons, most of them were adults when they showed up in the land of Canaan, and they're only there for a few years before they go down to Egypt. So for them and their posterity, Canaan meant nothing. Egypt was where they had lived for 400 years. It was their customs and their traditions that had become normal and acceptable and pleasing to them. They wanted Egypt. But they were not Egyptians. They were created for a different place, a better place. But they didn't know it. So in the book of Exodus, God gets them out of Egypt. But you know what the rest of the book is spent trying to do? Get Egypt out of the people. So many of us, so many people, we are content in Egypt. We think that Egypt is our home. And we don't recognize that we were made for a different place. So we ask for help when our life in Egypt, our comfort in Egypt is disrupted by some acute pressure or pain. But we're not thinking in terms of, God, get me out of Egypt. We're just thinking, God, make my time in Egypt pleasant again. So God, in his mercy then, uses their affliction in Egypt to begin the weaning process to get Egypt out of their system. They didn't want to leave in the first place. They wouldn't have agreed to go with Moses unless there was some pressure. But we were not made for Egypt any more than they were. So God uses the discomfort and displeasure of slavery to get them to the point where they start being willing to consider another way. The weaning process can be very discomforting for a child because weaning inherently means not giving the baby what it wants. But of course, unless a mother's cruel, she doesn't wean the child cold turkey. There's a cessation of milk while there's an introduction of baby food. Right? You all know what I'm talking about. But weaning is discomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And this is what we see God beginning his work here. The affliction that he sent, that he allowed to happen, that he ordained to happen to them, was such that they would begin the process of disconnecting their affections from Egypt. And this is where we see the nature of our covenant God. God does not simply want their obedience. He wants their affections. He wants their delight which goes back to something that's been said many times, that the essence of true worship is delight. We naturally worship the thing that we most delight in, and God wants to be the one thing in the universe that satisfies every longing we have. 
He is the only one that can ultimately satisfy. So yes, God introduces discomfort to begin weaning us off the things of the world, the things that will ultimately leave us high and dry, but in our myopic, short-sighted perspective, we think it's everything. So look around at your life. Where are you? Are you content in Egypt? If you call on the name of Jesus, you can expect that he will begin weaning you off that because Egypt is not your home. Or are you convinced that Egypt is not your home and you are looking forward to the heavenly city, but still you find your flesh and your affections pulled? God still works in you to become the absolute apple of your eye. Brothers and sisters, this passage is an amazing passage about the God who knows and is with his people. And he remembers his covenant and he will never break it. But he's a let them stew in some discomfort so as to begin weaning their affections. And that's exactly what he's doing for us in, in our weight. He's weaning you. So as you leave, ask yourself, am I content in Egypt? Am I resisting the weaning? Or am I embracing it? Let's pray.